everyone. Welcome back to an all new episode of the 20% podcast, the podcast that brings you tips and tricks from industry professionals across all industries that you could implement in your current job today. I'm your host, Tyler Meckis. This week's guest is Cal Fussman. This was a very special interview for me because Cal is one of the major reasons why I actually started podcasting in the first place. He made a special appearance on Tim Ferriss's show to which Tim talked him into starting his own podcast. As both of them are my podcast inspirations, I knew this was going to be a fantastic episode. Cal is a New York Times bestselling author, professional speaker, storytelling coach, and the host of Big Questions. Cal was best friends with Larry King and shared breakfast with him every single morning. He also traveled the world for 10 straight years after booking a one-way ticket. He worked his way around the world, bus by bus, where locals would invite them into his home, which there'll be more about this in the episode. Cal was a former writer for Esquire magazine as well, where he interviewed a very impressive list of people. Here's just a couple people to name a few. Muhammad Ali, Mikhail Gorbachev, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Larry King, Tony Bennett, Bruce Springsteen, Leonardo DiCaprio, Dr. Dre, Clint Eastwood, John Wooden, Bobby Bowden, Mike Krzyzewski, Tom Hanks, Shaquille O'Neal, and the list goes on and on and on. In this week's episode, we discussed how a good question could get you to the most powerful person in the world, Ukraine and their fight for a free society, building the connection bridge, how every step back is a step forward, rethinking healthcare in America, how to tell your story, and much more. Please enjoy this very special episode with my friend, Cal Fussman. Cal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here. Uh, I am so excited, Cal. And I was, as I was just telling Cal as we were warming up, Cal is an absolute idol to me. He is the, the big question guy, the, the curious guy. Um, and he's one of the reasons why I started my podcast. He's really good friends with a guy named Tim Ferriss. Um, I don't know who, who doesn't know Tim at this point. If you do, um, he's pretty easy to find online. Uh, but Cal started his podcast after being a guest on Tim's show. And I know um, if you listen to any of Cal's episodes, he always thanks Tim for nudging him to start the podcast. So I uh, want to thank, thank Cal and Tim uh, for, for really bringing us all together here. Now, now Cal, as we do in every single episode, really want to dive into the early years of Cal. But before that, I heard that one of the major lessons that you learned in your career is the importance of, go, of the first question going to the heart and not to the head. So Cal, what is the biggest lesson that your father ever taught you? Well, my dad was a guy who got up every day and went to a train station, got on a train at the same time, took a hour and a half commute, went to work, took another hour and a half commute going home and arrived at home same time every night. And I think what he taught me was he was putting in the foundation of a life where I could get on trains and go out and see the world. He was sacrificing so that his family could just go out in whatever way his kids wished and do whatever they wanted. And that really opened the door for me to do everything I've been able to do. 
Yeah, that, that's fantastic. And it's so important to have. And I know that that was a question that you actually asked Mikhail Gorbachev um, years ago and, it, and got a really incredible, I mean, uh, an incredible response and, and, and saved you uh, a lot of time as well. But that's, that, that's phenomenal. I think it's really important to have those, those types of people in your life um, who are setting that foundation, setting the stage and, and showing you what it is to be a, a, a genuine person in, in, in moving out through the, career, the rest of your career. So I'm sure that he had a lot. And I, oh, I know from reading about you and, and what your journey is that, you know, that, that journey came full cycle as well um, later on as, we, as we'll get into. But um, so born, born in Brooklyn, moved to Yonkers. Um, tell me a little bit more about young Cal besides, you know, obviously when you grew up, you had two goals of wanting to have your face on a newspaper and, and do a magazine article with Muhammad Ali. Can you tell everybody a little bit more about what that childhood looked like um, and, and maybe what some of your, your first jobs were, what, your, uh, you know, what, what you were like as a kid? Were you always this genuine, curious person? Well, it started to me or for me on a very specific day. It was November 23rd, 1963. I was seven years old. I had just turned seven the week before. And on November 23rd, I'm sitting in my second grade class, middle of the room, and it's sort of the, it's heading into the afternoon, and the teacher, Miss Jaffe, leaves the room for a minute, and she comes back like a different person. Her face was blanched white wearing the same clothes, but you could just tell something just happened. And she starts to explain that President Kennedy has been shot. And so I'm sitting there listening to this, um, a smallest guy in the class and probably one of the youngest. And nobody really knew how to take it. But we were let out of school. We all ran home, turned on the television, and found out that President Kennedy had been assassinated. And we also learned a little later that the vice president, a guy named Lyndon B. Johnson, had taken the oath of office and was the new president. And so that night, my parents didn't know how I was going to I take the whole event. It was the first time that I'd ever really had to deal with death in any way. And the whole country was in shock and, and, and mourning. And so they called me over to the kitchen table and they said, Cal, look, what happened today is a terrible tragedy. But we want you to know that this has happened in our country's past. The country has a system to deal with it. That's why you saw vice president stepped up to be the president and Lyndon B. Johnson is the new president. And tomorrow morning, we just want you to know you can go to bed feeling comfortable uh, because when you wake up, you're going to have breakfast just like you did last Saturday. You're going to be able to go out and play and everything will slowly return to normal. So we just want you to know you can get a good night's sleep. And then they went over to talk to my brother. And so 
the, to show you how naive I was, Tyler, uh, the only people that I ever heard of, of as having middle initials were presidents, like Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Harry S. Truman. So I'm sitting at the kitchen table thinking this guy, Lyndon B. Johnson, he had to know he was gonna be the president when he was a kid because <laughs> the only people get to be president are people with middle initials. So I'm just sitting at the table and I'm wondering like, what is going through Lyndon B. Johnson's head at the time he's taking this oath for office? Is he happy that he's president? Cause he's been waiting for this all of his life. He knew it was coming. right? Or is he sad because he knows he's only the president because of the assassination? And then I stopped and thought, wow, maybe he's scared that they're going to try and kill him too. So I had no idea what was going on in Lyndon B. Johnson's head. And I picked up a pen, piece of paper, and I just started writing. Dear President Johnson, how does it feel? Are you happy to be the new president? Are you sad? Are you scared? I threw out a few other options. I wished him well. And the timing was just right because we had learned in school how to address an envelope. And so I folded the paper up in thirds, dropped it in the envelope, closed it up, got a stamp, licked the stamp, that's how we used to do it in the old days, and put it in the top right-hand corner. And then I just folded the envelope up and stuffed it in my pocket. I didn't tell anybody about it. Uh, it's not like I had any ambition in this letter. I, I simply wanted to know how he felt. And so the next day I went out uh, to play and just dropped the letter in the mailbox. And it actually took a while for things to return to any semblance of normal. I wonder if they ever <laughs> returned uh, since that day in my life, uh, because it was such a moment that gripped the country. And right after that, the suspect in the killing was shot. Uh, and so we saw that on live TV. And so it, it really was a time of what seemed like chaos and uncertainty. And it took a while for things to just get back in the cycle of normality, and it did. And I kind of forgot about the letter until about, oh, must've been five, six months later, my mom came racing up the steps of our apartment and she's holding an envelope in her right hand. And it's addressed to me, and it's from the White House, oh, from the president. 
And so we open it up and the beauty of it is, was how respectful this letter was. Because obviously anyone who opened it up could tell by the scrawl that I was in second grade. But the letter back was written with reverence and you could tell from the second sentence, which began something like, in answer to your query, <laughs> and I had no idea what a query was, but I did know or notice that pretty soon the apartment was filled with neighbors who all wanted to see the letter from the president. And then the principal at the school heard about it and he was calling and asking me to bring it into school. And suddenly like the smallest guy in his second grade class was a big man. And so from that day on, I knew that a good question could get you to the most powerful person on earth. And that a good question could, well, I came to find out in, in time that it could do so many other things. I, I know uh, your podcast is based in part on sales and questions or good questions are basically what a salesman uses to gather the information to sell the product and close the deal. So really what I've been doing over the next you know, five decades or so is is asking questions in the same way a salesperson would ask questions, uh, except I wasn't really trying to close a deal. I was just trying to gather information to write a story that explained the world to people. Yeah, that is a phenomenal story, Callan. And this, I just hear the birth of the big questions coming here. They're like right there and there, right there in Miss Jaffe's class, or maybe when you got home, right? The, the curiosity and, and just the being genuine, it just sounds like you're being genuinely empathetic and, and curious of asking those questions of how do you actually feel about this? And to your point about sales, I mean, questions are, are living, right? If you're not asking great questions, you don't want to go in and interrogate somebody. Um, a good, good questions are, are essential. And I think, so the other, the other, the other main thought from that whole mention is like, should I start walking around saying that I'm Tyler F. Meckis or, or Cal S. Fussman? Like, should we start putting our middle initials out there? Because it, <laughs> it obviously makes us more, more important, right? <laughs> well, I came to f find out over time that it was just, they, they, all had nick they all had middle names. For some reason, I don't know why, the journalists at the time must have thought it was cool to turn it into a middle initial. Uh, but, and I, I really don't know why I, to this day when it actually makes me curious. <laughs> why wouldn't they just use, and sometimes I remember when I found out that not everybody with a middle initial gets to be president. Uh, I also remember Richard M. Nixon, knowing that it was Richard Milhouse Nixon. So I got the idea that you could have a middle name and still be president. 
that is phenomenal, Cal. So let's let's continue on moving forward. So you you're already starting to write these journals uh, at a young age, or, or, or start asking these questions. Then you decided, you know what? I want to go to University of Missouri. Why did why journalism? Was it because of that early experience? Did you find a love from second grade to the college years? Well, it was only a few months after the assassination of John F. Kennedy that a guy named Cassius Clay won the heavyweight championship uh, by beating Sonny Liston. And he was a seven to one underdog. And he was, uh, he had seen a professional wrestler named Gorgeous George uh, who had blonde hair and he would go into the ring and just boast about how good looking he was. And he, he was like a bad guy. And he was always infuriating the crowd, but he just saw that gorgeous George had filled all the seats. So he took a little from that book and called himself the greatest. And I talked about how good looking he was and like alienated a lot of people. Uh, but he, he was fast and could throw punches, you know, faster than you can almost see them. And he, everybody, or a lot of America wanted him to lose. They wanted to see the braggadocio shut up. And he was a seven to one underdog in February of 1964. So again, it's only a few months after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And he beat Sonny Liston, left Sonny Liston uh, on his stool, uh, unable to come out. And right after that, it was like a new era had started. Uh, but right after that, he turned his name to Muhammad Ali. Only people would not call him Muhammad Ali. Uh, they were already upset with his boasting. And now he was taking on a name from the nation of Islam. And I didn't, you know, it, it's funny because we're talking about names here. Again, I was only seven years old. And I, I asked my dad, like, can you change your name? And my dad said, yeah, anybody can change their name. And I said, well, why won't people call Muhammad Ali by the name that he wants? Why do they keep calling him Cassius Clay? And, and this went on for years. Does this happen in like 64? Uh, when he was fighting in 1967 against a guy named Ernie Terrell, he, Terrell taunted him by calling him Clay. And throughout the fight, uh, Ali would hit him with like eight punches that Terrell couldn't catch. And then he stepped back and say, what's my name? What's my name? And so from, uh, you know, I never made the connection till this moment, but it was really names that set in motion all his curiosity. And I became really curious about Muhammad Ali and why he changed his name. And like I would ask my dad, it's like hard to explain to a seven-year-old, like 
the whole, all the racial implications and, uh, and so that only made me more curious to find out what was going on, where, where this was headed. And it basically led me to, into all the mayhem that would be the 60s. And it's interesting because I think a lot of what we saw then, you got a, a taste of over the last few years during COVID and, and the riots only. I, I think it was much, it, it was crazier back in the 60s because you had cities burning down and riots. Uh, we were at war in Vietnam. Half the nation didn't want to be there. Half the nation thought it was the right thing to do. And there were like confrontations in the streets between like students who didn't want to get drafted into the war and older people who had like fought in Korea, World War II, who thought the young people weren't doing their duty. And so there was just so many questions during this time. It's like, why? And then you'd watch Dr. Martin Luther King and then he'd get shot and killed. And then Bobby Kennedy would get shot and killed. Like you couldn't stop asking why. Like every day you woke up and something else had happened that you had to ask questions about. And so that's really where a lot of what I became was steeped in. And, you know, I was just watching, there was uh, Olympic games that go back to uh, like a basketball game against Russia, where uh, the, like the United States lost Olympic basketball for the first time. And there were really questions about the officiating and, uh, the way the Russians were playing, like it, the way the mistrust that we're seeing in the Russians now was what like I grew up with in the middle of the 60s. So there were just questions from all angles. And if you wanted to know the answers, the best place to be was at that time, to go into newspapers, because then you could ask the questions and find out for yourself. Wow, and that'd be really that'd be really interesting to see because obviously in your formative years, you know, obviously you had the JFK assassination, you had the Vietnam, like I, I'd, all these things, all these crazy situations that were happening that would make you ask why. It'd be interesting to write down or or just to see all of them in that period to make you understand like why like. This is this interesting, you know, like it is super interesting why all of this happened because it made you into the genuine, genuinely curious person that you are today. And it makes me wonder if you, if you, if there hadn't gone through all of that stuff, maybe you wouldn't have been as curious or maybe you wouldn't have been on that same path if all of these atrocities didn't unfortunately happen. Now you did draw a comparison to, to now, obviously, you know, we're, we're in the middle of April of 2022, um, a lot of, you know, we're, we're just over the first month of what's happening, you know, in, in Ukraine or the, the devastation that's happening there. Um, a lot of 
these in a lot of really tough times and a lot of these situations that are coming up. So Callie, obviously, you know, you going through a lot of those and in those, those formative years. And, and obviously as you were growing up, obviously things have happened throughout the course of time. What advice do you have to either parents to kids who are seeing some of this stuff going on of how you may have gotten through it yourself? I mean, your parents had really great advice about, you know, you're, the sun's still going to come up tomorrow, right? It's just a matter of what your mindset is. What advice do you have for, I guess, all types of people going through that tough time, whether it's that kid or that parent who has a kid, or even, you know, parents are asking these same why questions as well. Yeah, it's interesting because after I went into newspapers and uh, started in magazines, uh, a magazine I was working on, which was the greatest job ever for a young writer. Uh, it was like a huge success creatively, but uh, financially the plug got pulled on it. And was this inside sports now? Yeah, and that was inside sports in the early 80s. And that kind of sent me around the world. And that trip lasted, you know, roughly 10 years. But a part of it was going behind the Iron Curtain and going to Ukraine, going to Romania, Hungary, and seeing what life was like there. And it, I got to say, it, it was chilling to go to Romania, which is very close to Ukraine. Uh, they had a dictator named Ceausescu. And it's like hard for anybody to fathom what it's like to walk up to a bookstore in the middle of the capital with a long window where you would normally see like all the books that were bestsellers now and uh, the books that you would be curious to buy. And in this capital, in that bookstore, I, I walked down like the whole block, which was like a window. And every book in the window was authored by Ceausescu, the dictator. That, like, that was it. <laughs> and people were scared to talk to me uh, because they didn't know if the secret police would hunt them down for some reason. And when I was in the Ukraine, it was right after, what happened is, give you an idea, this, this all is very relevant now. This happened, if you look at, say, 1980, I think it's 85. And that's when Gorbachev comes into power, all right? Now, I want to take you back earlier than that to a place where uh, the Soviets in 1979 invaded Afghanistan. Now, see if this sounds familiar. Uh, the person who was in charge was a guy named Brezhnev, and he was 
going on 70. And very much it's the same age as Putin. And, and what, what happened is he was, he would, he became old like quickly and he passed away. And then the leaders that followed him were all old and they just kept on just going through these same motions and, and dying. There was a guy named Andropov, another guy named Chernenko who was like in the hospital when they made him the, the leader. I mean, and, and they just acted like he was okay. And then he died. So people were like dying, dying, dying. And then it got to a place where this young guy named Gorbachev came in uh, in 85. And when he came in the year later is when they had the Chernobyl accident where everything, the radiation went up into the air. And to give you an idea of like the Soviet society, like even Gorbachev didn't know what was going on. Like he, they, people, the idea is like you cover stuff up. Every, everything is completely covered up and there's so much disinformation. And so, you know, they told people in the area, yeah, you know what, have, go out and have some vodka and go in with sauna and, and you'll be fine. Well, of course, uh, the radiation goes in the air and actually it's only a few days before they can detect it over Scotland coming down in the rain and landing while there are animals grazing. And they actually had to slaughter all the animals uh, because they would have been used for meat and they couldn't allow that. And so Gorbachev is looking at this and saying, this is, we, we cannot function this way. Like the, the economy is really in a shambles, but everybody's been lying about it. And I'm not even getting the truth on a nuclear disaster. And so that's when he came up with this concept of two things, uh, perestroika and glasnost, which was basically uh, restructuring and uh, an openness, an open restructuring. And that's when I went in. So I was able to travel around, and, but they had, they knew where I was at all times. They were following me. And even when I got to the Ukraine, they basically sent like an agent who was a young guy. Like, these agents would double as uh, people who would like want to buy your jeans and sell them on the black market, but they were also watching you. And they were also like, tried to set you up with a beautiful woman. Uh, and probably compromise you in some way. And so, you know, we went through the whole, the whole thing, but I like, I knew that I was being watched and I can just recall, uh, like, I, I never really liked to keep a diary, 
while I was traveling, just because I, I kind of want to live spontaneously in the moment and not be analyzing things. Uh, but I knew at that point that there's no way I'm keeping a diary now because it, I can be stopped at any point. And that, that's what happened when, I, when the train came into Romania. Like they just took my backpack with everything in it and like went through it. Uh, you know, they, they brought it back, but you know, it was after like three hours on the train, you don't know what's gonna happen. So you're living with this sense of, uh, it's a loss of freedom. And so I don't think people in America, especially the young people, who have all this freedom can possibly understand what it's like to be Russian right now and to not be able to get any information about what's really going on unless they're actively searching for it. Uh, it's, it's a really, it's a way to live that I don't want to live. And I don't think anybody in America would want to live. And yet, I don't think people know that feeling in the gut of being, being on a train and, and having your passport taken away and not knowing if they're going to give it back, not knowing what's going to happen. So I would really ask people to go back and look at what it was like in the times of the Berlin Wall. And again, we're, we're really talking about this time because this, this time when the Berlin Wall came down only a few years later, because Gorbachev basically understood that this was not gonna hold up. It was all a construct. There was no real economy behind it. And so, he, you know, Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, there was a peace agreement made. And what happened is the wall came down and everybody here thought, wow, what a breath of fresh air. And Gorbachev really has a vision for the future. And now I want you to imagine Vladimir Putin at this point, when the Berlin Wall comes down, he is a KGB officer in Dresden which is in East Germany. And like mobs of people start going to like, the Stasi, the uh, undercover agency in East Germany to protest. And then a bunch of people go to the KGB office there. And it looks like they may be uh, on the brink of just overrunning the place. And Putin comes out and Putin says, you better leave because the people inside are armed and they have instructions to shoot. And the people looked at each other and they all left. And Putin went back inside and now he's scared because he doesn't know what kind of protection he really has. And he calls up uh, for aid. And he gets a message saying, uh, he's asking like for tanks to be like, put in front 
of the office. Like, you know, don't mess with us. And they basically tell him that we have to, we can't send the tanks over without getting approval from Moscow. And Moscow is not answering our calls. And that was the moment where Putin understood, like it was the oh shit moment in Putin's life. Like this whole system that he clearly loved was crumbling before his eyes. There was no protection for him. And pretty soon he was on his way back home, like with a washing machine in the trunk because uh, he didn't have one back in, in the Soviet Union. And on his start and his ascendancy uh, toward the presidency of, of Russia. So you, you really can see where you have to look back at what has happened in order to get a, a glimpse of where we were and how we should be thinking now. Because I, I think the people of the Ukraine are really fighting for uh, a lot of people now. You know, they're fighting for anybody who wants to live in a free society. And so we, we really got to ad admire and help them any way we can. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And thank you so much for that background story too. I think it's really interesting to hear your perspective on it because of obviously traveling over time and just being the, the historian, um, I guess that, that, that you are, but, um, you know, Tyler, the crazy thing about it is I, like, I never considered myself a historian. It's just that I lived through it. <laughs> you know, you go, it, you know, like I went to the Berlin Wall when people were trying to escape and getting shot. And that's like you, you remember that. Uh, now I went back, I gave a talk in Berlin. It was like, must have been, it was either 2018 or 2019. Most of the wall was down. They just kept a little section as remembrance and people are partying there. And they didn't have an idea of the feeling that I felt in my gut when I was there uh, and what it must have been like for the people who had lost their freedom on the other side. So there is a, a, lot, a lot to consider when we look at what, what's going on right now. There is a tremendous battle of forces between people who want to be able to control how masses think and people who want to live in a society where we all have the right to think what we want to think. So this, this time is crucial going forward. Wow, and, and the way that you put it that way, I mean, that's, that's crazy, right? I mean, you think about like, this, like you think, yeah, it's just a, a war of what's going on, but really taking taking that big step back, obviously, as you mentioned, taking a step back to the origins of it, you're taking a step back now and, and really understanding that there's a lot bigger stakes at play. And that's and God, that's crazy, Cal. That's uh that's I'm gonna be thinking about that one for for a while as we as we continue on here. But um, you know, talking further about, you know, 
that 10 year, and I love how you just, the, the nonchalantness in the, oh yeah, that I took a trip that, that happened for 10 years, right? <laughs> just to give, just to give everybody a really quick background story. Cal, after, you know, after Inside Sports folded up, him and a few buddies went across the, uh, you know, across the world and they were just planning on, you know, taking a trip and it ended up lasting for 10 years. And Cal actually found himself, you know, with it, with the money in his pocket and, and didn't have plans essentially. Right. So he had to literally go onto these buses and find the people who he needed to find a place to stay that night. And, and, you know, obviously I'll, I'll spare a lot of, of that story for, you know, if you want to listen to Tim Ferriss's podcast, I'll link that. Um, Cal gives a really good background story there, but one of the main things, Cal, that I want to jump into over, you know, over this 10 year span of trying to find out these certain people, I, there's a lot of sales skills that were happening over the course of while you were here, you know, right. So you're walking down, you're walking down that aisle of the bus and you're trying to decide who are you going to sit next to? You couldn't sit next to that pretty woman because she probably wasn't going to take you home per what you've mentioned previously. And so you had to find that older woman who looks like she makes a good goulash, right? <laughs> and I know yeah. that's a, a part of the story, but so the, the main thing behind that was Cal sat down next to this Hungarian woman and asked her, you know, what, what does it take to make a good goulash? Just being, being able to know what that question was, it opened her up, which led to weeks and weeks of parties and, and sitting out other, at other people's houses, you know, finding that space. So Cal, what's the importance of, in, in your experience, being able to find the right person to talk to, or even ask that, or, or to know what type of question to ask to what audience? Because I feel like that experience from what you went through directly correlates to sales. I, I agree. I, I never saw it that way at the time, uh, but, and it's a different time now because if I got on trains in Europe now, I might find people with earbuds in their ears and they got music blasting and I could be sitting next to them and I would have to figure out a way to get their attention and ask a question. Back then, there were no earbuds. And, and again, we're talking about the time before the Berlin Wall came down, when there were a lot of young people who were taking English. And so they wanted to speak to somebody who could actually speak English. And so I became, for the young people, like a great gift. Uh, and so, you know, like you mentioned the beautiful woman and when you're walking down a, a train aisle or a bus aisle and you don't have much money in your pocket, you don't have enough to spend in a hotel every night uh, even a hostel, like what you want to have happen is to sit down with somebody next to somebody and ask a question that's going to start a conversation, which is going to grow and a curiosity is going to make them want to know about you. They're going to find out you're from America. They're going to want to know about America. And at the end of the ride, they're going to invite you home. And so that's pretty much what I did. Uh, 
for a long time. And once you got into somebody's home, the next natural step was for the party to start because now uh, they have a visitor. And especially if this is like a small town, like not much new happens. And so this is a reason for a party. And so everybody has their questions for me. I have my questions for them, but food is, you mentioned the goulash, which I asked a grandmother on a train in Hungary, uh, which led her to invite me home and invite other people to come to dinner the next night where she served her goulash. And then the other people invited me to their homes. And what happened is at that point, I had a lot of connections because people just started passing me around. So I didn't need hotels. And not only that, but I really didn't need to pay for food because everybody wanted to put out their best food. And it gave them a great sense of satisfaction to know that I love their goulash or I love their pasta or wherever I went, it, it made people, you know, grandma's love when they put out food and everybody loves the food. And that's what they live for. Right. So just asking a very basic question can take you in, in, into places that you can't imagine. I mean, you can just ask somebody, where do you get a good ice cream around here? And the, the beauty of that question is you're asking somebody about something that they may really like, ice cream. Who doesn't like ice cream? So they are seeing you like ice cream. I like ice cream. We have ice cream in common. And I know a great place to eat ice cream. So I'm going to tell them. And then they tell me the place. And now I'm like, well, why is it so good? Now there may be a personal story attached to it. You know, maybe it's like in Gorbachev's case, you know, well, my dad took me into this place to get ice cream. And it was, it turned out like a pivotal moment in his life where his dad took him to get this ice cream right before his dad had to go off to war. And Gorbachev under, later understood that moment was so important to him because he didn't know if he was ever going to see his dad again if that ice cream would be the last little meal that they shared. And so food is a great example of the, just the connection, the positive connection between all of us and probably no better example than Anthony Bourdain's show uh, on CNS before he sadly uh, left us where like, anybody watching who's just curious about eating food they never knew about is just going to lean in. And, and so a, a question doesn't have to be something complicated. It just could be simple that connects with the person's heart. I always like to say the best questions 
make the person asked just as curious about the answer as you are, maybe even more curious. So when you ask somebody, where's the best ice cream around here? Maybe they have two ice cream places that they love. And now they're curious as to which answer they're going to give you. All right, let me ask you that question. Where are you sitting right now? I am sitting right outside of Philadelphia about a half an hour or so. Okay. What's, what's the name of the town? It's Westchester. Westchester. Okay. Where's the best place to get ice cream in Westchester? Uh, it's actually right outside of Westchester at Brewster's. Well, what kind of ice cream they got? All sorts of awesome handmade uh, home. Yeah. Just made, made their ice creams, all, all sorts, whatever, whatever you like they have. Like what's your favorite flavor there? I always go with the cookies and cream. The cookies and cream. And do you remember the first time you went into Brewster's? Yeah, absolutely. What happened? Just absolutely delighted by great service and incredible ice cream spent with my wife. What flavor did she get? Oh God, Cal, you put me on the spot. I do not know. <laughs> oh, See, that's the, that's the point. You were so transfixed with your cookies and cream that you weren't even paying attention. To Cal, your you're getting me in trouble, man. I know I'm getting you in trouble here. <laughs> but I guarantee you one thing. When it comes to your kids, you are going to know their favorite flavors. And you will take them to Brewster's and they are going to remember those trips to Brewster's. And when somebody asks them about their favorite place, they're going to say, oh, it's Brewster's. Oh, why? Because when I was four years old, my dad took me and we had. And so you ask somebody that question and now you're connected to their family in some way. And the conversation can just take leaps off of that. And it's just a simple example of using a basic question involving food to get close to somebody. And a salesperson can do it. Like, why wouldn't a salesperson do it? Yeah, the smartest people. And it could, could very easily. Now, now I'm just thinking of like, why am I not using food as something that's really big in my life? Why am I not? researching where they are, maybe, maybe to find a potential ice cream spot or somewhere around their place that they may like, you know, I don't know, just, just, uh, just trying to, you know, obviously I like to use sports because sports is, is something that, you know, most people are, are the people that I'm talking with are relatively interested in or at least it's one of those common, uh, you know, threads of trying to, um, connect with somebody. Right. But I think what you're just mentioning is you're asking a question, whether it's just to incite some type of curiosity um, and get them thinking and getting some kind of emotion into it. Right. Getting getting their heart involved, I think is exactly what you mentioned. Right. It's interesting. If you try it with sports, it can go either way on you. Like if you are, right, you're a Phillies fan, you know, I'm trying to think who are you a Phillies fan? Yeah. Are I, you an Eagles fan? Uh, I'm actually, they're my secondary team. I'm actually a Miami Dolphins fan, believe it or not. You're a Dolphins Like, why are you a Dolphins fan? Uh, my, see, my dad is a big Dolphins fan, and he grew up, his childhood, you know, he was born in 67, I think. So 
right when he was five or six years old. Five, when they they went were undefeated. They were undefeated. I, right. I think that's why he, I, I don't know that specifically. He doesn't know the purpose, but just putting two and two together, it makes logical sense, I think. Yeah, so, okay, we can get into that conversation. This is a perfect example. And now you just told me about your dad and he's five years old uh, and he was like, may have been listening to the Dolphins games on radio. Remember back then you couldn't see every home game on television. They, they wouldn't let you see home games unless after a while they were sold out because they were scared that if the stadium wasn't full, then uh, why would we let people watch it for free on TV? That was the mentality. And that's really funny now, thinking about looking back on it now, huh? Yeah, and uh, like I, I was a New York Giant fan at that time, and I would have to listen to the games on radio. And that's, that's how it was. And you mentioned before we got started on the podcast, you're talking about Larry King. He was uh, announcing... Uh, he wasn't the main announcer. He was kind of the color man uh, of that Miami Dolphin team. So now I've, we've just got a connection between your dad and one of my closest friends. And we're now connected in Miami. And you know what? It just so happens I was at a wedding in Miami last week. So you can just see how if, if you apply this tactic in sales, we, we already have like an overlap. We, I know you like the Dolphins. I know what your dad was listening to back in 1972 when the Dolphins were the first undefeated team, 17-0. and 0. I might talk about how every year when it looks like there might be another undefeated team, the Miami Dolphins were still alive from that 72 team. Uh, they wait for the first loss and then they all like lift a glass of champagne. The champagne yep. <laughs> yeah. And so we, we're now talking. We're, now we got these connections and I haven't tried to sell you anything. Right. All, all I've done is just connect with you uh, over the Miami Dolphins, we both understand that we both like football. And the question is, where can it go from there? Now, if I'm trying to sell something, obviously, I'm looking for the spot where, oh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, if, if anybody's listening on audio, you just saw Tyler like, take his two hands and then from the sides uh, go outward and then inward to connect his fingers together because that's what great salespeople do. Build the they, bridge. They build the bridge and then make it seamless when it comes to telling somebody about the product. Then they may not go into a direct pitch. They may just put out like a little bait to get to, to see if there's something you're gonna be interested in. And maybe you need help in that area. So now it's not even, let me tell you what I do. Let me tell you what I say. It's a matter of, 
oh, you, you need help in that area. Now you have somebody who's just connected with you offering to help make your life better. This is like, it's a, it's a very simple thing, but you know, it takes practice and the people who are great at it, as soon as you see them, you know that these people are masters and it doesn't matter what they're selling. They'll take you from the Miami Dolphins, your dad, my close friend to whatever it is they got to sell. They'll find the way they will lance in and, and discover the need you have for the product they sell. And if they can do it without some kind of five minute pitch, that is the beauty of it. If you got to start saying, I work here and this is what I do and this is the product that I sell and it just start going on and on and on, it's no longer a conversation, it's a sales pitch. So uh, I have great respect for salespeople who can carry on that conversation and make it so seamless. Yeah, and you know what? And thank you so much for, for being a fan of sales. There's not too many people that actually are, and that's one of the biggest things that I'm trying to do of trying to reduce that negative stigma in the sales profession as well. And I know, I know we're right at time. Do you have a couple more minutes? Sure, I get it. I, I absolutely do. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's actually made me you know, think of a few connections that I never really considered. We started with the names and now we're talking about sales in a way that stems from questions. And so take a few more minutes and ask whatever you'd like. Absolutely. This is awesome. Hal, this is this is fantastic, and and I, I'm so glad that you know we're we're having this conversation because you know, like I mentioned, sales is is just a, an accumulation of a bunch of skills o over time, right? And obviously, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, before, you know, somebody who was you know one of the big things about sales is asking those good questions, being a great listener, and and building relationships. And as you just mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, um, Larry King was one of your best friends. Um, for those who don't know, um, Cal used to actually go and, and sit and eat breakfast with Larry King at Nate and Al's, at Nate and Al's Deli, I believe. Is that right, Cal? Every yeah. single morning. So could you tell me, like, obviously you, that he's an, an absolute legend. You're, you're a legend getting to sit with these awesome people. What's your, what was your favorite lesson that Larry taught you? The best lesson Larry taught me was Every setback is a step forward. And he had many setbacks in his life, but he viewed them as opportunities. And I'm sorry, it looks like the uh, fire detector is going off. So <laughs> no worries. I, I hope there's no fire here. <laughs> I think the battery might be low, but that is the best piece of advice he gave me because anytime something looks like it's going wrong. You can either see it as, uh, no, I can't believe this is happening, 
Or you can see it as, where's the opportunity here? And that is gonna make all the difference because if you are seeing it as an opportunity, now you're alert and moving forward to something as opposed to being on the defensive, covering up, oh no, I'm in trouble. This is a terrible thing. And so that lesson will stick with me for the rest of my life and change the way I approach any situation that looks like it's not going well. Wow. And that, that's incredible advice. And that's something that that's a, a perfect segue into the next section of, of where we were is uh, uh, last year, you took some time to be a caretaker for your father. And it was, you know, uh, your father was, from what I understand, he, he was sick and you and your wife moved across the country to, to be there with him. Um, and, you know, you were, you, it sounds like you took Larry's advice right then and there of being able to spend, um, you know, not a great situation, but you were able to spend that time with your father and in, in doubling down on um, some of the, the movie features, I think double features, I think I read. Um, and, and now that in that whole thing as well, when you were going in, in to the different doctor's appointments with him, it actually opened your eyes up to what your main mission is now of, of confronting America's healthcare problems. Can you tell me a little bit more about you know, what that situation was of, you know, with your father, you're, you're going through and seeing, wow, this is an issue that needs to be taken care of. Like what, what about healthcare are you focusing on specifically now? And I think that this is a perfect, you know, obviously the situation wasn't great with what happened here, but here's Larry's advice coming through, right? You know what? It's interesting. You mentioned that Tyler, I never really saw it through Larry's advice. And, uh, and in fact, uh, it, it, I was in a crazy position because I was having had breakfast with Larry almost every day for 12 years and I was living in LA, but once COVID hit, you know, I, my dad was living alone and he was approaching 90. And so it, I just knew it was time to go back and just care for him. So I moved to North Carolina I like rented a place five minutes away from him and just went basically spent the last year of his life having dinner with him every night. We'd watch a couple of movies, but everything was closed down due to COVID. So I was making a living up prior to that as a keynote speaker, but all the gigs were canceled. So it, it actually turned out to be uh, a great blessing to be able to spend that time with my dad and be there for him uh, up until the end. He passed uh, last June. And during that time, you know, I started to understand like that a doctor every day in America on average was committing suicide. And that was before COVID. I can't imagine what that number is now, Cal. That it, it has to be astronomical. We are now down 1 million nurses. And that number will be, so they say, 1.5 million if trends continue by 2030. We're going to have, over the next three or four years, 120,000 physicians who are 
like getting to an age where they would have been, uh, you know, looking ahead to retirement, they're gone. They're just burnt out and they're done and they're going to leave. And we're going to have a very different situation. It's not going to be, I, I think it's, I don't know the exact number, so I'm not going to say it, but when you call up for a doctor's appointment, you don't get in the next day. Uh, it, it takes a while for you to get your appointment. And when these 120,000 doctors leave, it's going to take longer. And so I noticed that the whole system is going to have to change in, in a lot of ways. And then, you know, I had people, everybody was telling me healthcare is broken. That was inside it. Some were saying it's on life support. I look, miracles happen in it every day. At the same time, uh, it's a leading cause of bankruptcy, uh, in a personal bankruptcy in America. Uh, I think one in five people who owe money like in collections it's because of medical bills. And we really need to rethink the way we do this uh, because the doctors are not happy, they're burnt out, the nurses are leaving. And we're also approaching what's called a silver tsunami, which is a way of saying that we are going to be hitting a place where America's population is going to be like older rather than younger for the first time. So at the same time, we're gonna have more people who need more care. We're going to be having like less people able to deliver it. And look, there's telemedicine coming, there, there, things are coming, but there's gonna be issues over the next five years. And I just starting to look into the people who are trying to change things in a way for the better so that I can show what they're doing to the world and help them on their journeys. And that's, that's kind of where I'm going. So if anybody out there knows somebody who's doing something great in healthcare and reshaping the future of healthcare, send me an email at calfussman.com. I'll be delighted to look at it and maybe reach out to that person or reach out to you to say thank you because this is something that is going to affect everybody. And we, we really have to start to take care of our health and take care of our care and not just think this is a matter of putting down our insurance card and everything is, is covered because a lot of times it ain't. Yeah. And then first and foremost, Kyle, thank you so much for, for going after such a noteworthy cause and really using your platform for good with that. Obviously this, the, you know, the silver tsunami, I think you mentioned is that's all of that is, is very scary. And we need to make sure that we have, especially with COVID that just worsens the cause of everything that was, was happening. Right. But we, it, it's so important. And, and, and thank you so much for, uh, for, for really taking 
all on that. And if there's anybody else, please let me know because I want to help Cal in this mission as well. Now, Cal, I have three rapid fire questions that I want to ask as we're, as we're wrapping up here, we're going to have to do a round two at some point. Um, maybe we could do it over some Brewster's ice cream at some point too, if you're ever in Philly. So next time um, <laughs> I'm in Philly, we'll see you at Brewster's. <laughs> all right. So number one, as I'm writing a book right now, what is the number one piece of book writing advice that you have? The number one piece of book writing advice. Know exactly what you want to say. May seem simple, may seem obvious, and yet I can't tell you how many people have sent me books, I don't even have time to look at them anymore, uh, where they're just go off on a detour. They may have an idea and then they just start writing and it just veers off course. And once it's off course, it just goes in directions that they never intended. And so having an outline before you start writing, that enables you to see this is the starting line, this is the finish line. These are the landmarks we're going to pass on our way. And again, I apologize about <laughs> beeping. That's gonna be crucial to you. And in fact, when people sell books through agents to publishing houses and they write the proposals, that's what, the editors want to see. They want to know that you can follow your theme from chapter to chapter to chapter to chapter. They want to know what's going to be in all the chapters, how it's going to be treated. And if you can't do that, then you may be off on a wild journey that's going to take you years. And so Make sure you got a good outline that's got a start and a finish line, and that will pretty well guide you on the writing of the book. Wow, that's fantastic advice. What I, what I have right now is in the header, I put how does this relate to X, which is whatever my goal is, so that when I'm writing, I still have that same reminder, but I do like that beginning and end so that we know where we are in that journey. All right, number two, Cal, I'm a parent, you're a parent. What is your best piece of parenting advice? Wait. <laughs> Just wait for things to play out. You know, we get, especially when the kids are young, uh, people look at them and if they're not like at, at a place where like some people that they need to see their kids at the head of the class, some People just need to see their kids constantly succeeding. Uh, and like every kid's on their own journey and you got to have the patience to let them find themselves. You can't do it for them. They got to do it themselves. So you just wait and you, if they ask you for guidance, you give it, but they're going to have to do it on their own. So all you can do is really just sit back and wait for them to 
succeed on their own. That's fantastic advice. That That's more beneficial than you even know at this point. So I really appreciate that as well. Well, you got little ones. Yeah. So just take them to Brewster's and wait the rest of the time. You'll be <laughs> in shape. There you go. Final question, Cal. If I, I ask this question to every single guest on the podcast. If you were teaching a college 101 class based upon all of your previous life and work experience, what would you teach and why? I would probably teach them how to tell their story. And there's there are formulas to it. And it's surprising that a, a lot of people don't know how to tell a story. But if like if you're a salesman, you damn well better know how to tell your story, how to get people to understand who you are, where you're from, why they should trust you. Everybody should be able to do that. And yet you will find a lot of people who start off and then they just veer away from what the listener wants to hear and then they lose the listener. And so it's very important to, there are several steps, but it, it's very important to hook the person who's listening very early and then to make sure that the information you give that you give them is continually making them lean in to know more. Uh, if you keep talking, and a lot of people do this, they lose track of themselves and they just start rambling and they lose the listener. And then there is really no story and they're done. So it really is a matter of being able to articulate who you are uh, as quickly as possible in a concise and entertaining way. And I do storytelling workshops. So if anybody is like interested, if there's a com company interested, just reach out to me at calfussman.com and maybe we can set one up uh, because it's, it's amazing how useful it can be to somebody to be able to tell a good story for the rest of their lives. Cal, that is incredible. And I think that that was a perfect way to bookend this. You are the master storyteller and uh, storytelling is one of, if not the most important skill in sales professionals as well. I think life in general. So Cal, thank you so much for your time today. Where could people learn more about you and everything you have going on? Well, you can go to calbusman.com. My podcast is located there. And that's probably the, the best place. Now I have um, at, at Cal Fussman on, on Twitter. Uh, and there I throw up a, like a quote that makes you think every day. So if you like quotes, uh, just go to Cal Fussman on Twitter. Uh, but the website, the Cal, at calfussman.com is the best place to reach out to me or to uh, listen to talks that I've given or just read a little about my past and you'll get a good idea who I am. You can also find me on LinkedIn. I think you, you just from the way you were describing it, I get a sense 
that you look me up there. So plenty, plenty of places. And I guess it all depends on what you need me for. Absolutely, Cal. And I also have to say thank you so much to John McCaskill, who also did the introduction here. I'd be remiss to not do that. Men Talking Mindfulness. And the big questions are two of my favorite podcasts. So, Cal, thank you so much again. All right. Thank you. We shall see you at Brewster's. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. And if you enjoyed the show, it would mean the absolute world if you went to Apple and rated and reviewed the show for me as well, is this is a fantastic way to help grow the show and help to bring in fantastic guests and even more listeners to our tribe. So stay tuned for next episode and have a fantastic rest of your day.